Hi, I'm George Anderson, Senior Minister at Second Presbyterian Church. As part of our congregation's gift to the larger church, along with Union Presbyterian Seminary, we co-sponsor the Kitty Susan Trent Symposium for Newly Ordained Ministers, a continuing education event for new ministers that seeks to provide mentors, peer relationships, and effective resources for ministry. On the occasion of this year's symposium, my friend, Dr. Ed McLeod, Minister and Head of Staff at First Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina, and facilitator of the symposium, was invited to preach. May his message today, and the love of God, give you hope for tomorrow as together we worship. If you'll permit me a personal word before uh, we turn to God's word, I want to echo what Ken said. It's always a pleasure for us to be here, those of us who get to lead this very impressive uh, group of young pastors year by year as a part of this Trent Symposium. It's a high honor for us to be here, but also to be here to be reminded of the remarkable witness of this congregation, the glory of your worship, and so uh, it is just good to be here with you. If you've been keeping track of such things, you'll know that it's not really my turn to preach. I preached last year at the Trent Symposium, though I wouldn't expect you to remember that. But when Ken and George learned of my impending retirement, they uh, colluded together uh, to see if I might preach this year too, thinking that I might want to sort of take a walk down memory lane and, and reminisce about ministry. Um, I'm not going to do that because I don't want to be haunted by my theology professors who would, if I would stand here on the second Sunday of Easter and talk about me and my uh, ministry. So I won't do that. We are in the Easter season, and so we are rightfully considering the themes of what God has done in and for the world in Jesus Christ. So let us pray. Lord God of grace, who enters into our darkness to bring light, who enters into our hopelessness to transform us into a people of hope and joy and gladness. Be present with us today. Visit us according to your spirit that what we read and hear will be read and heard with understanding and with faithfulness and joy. Be present among us that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. For our first reading, we turn to the Psalms, to the 27th Psalm, beginning at the first verse. The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and foes, they shall stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise up against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. And then we turn to Mark's record of the gospel to hear Mark's rendering of the resurrection story that's found in the 16th chapter, again, beginning at the first verse. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. 
And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there's the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Amen. I recently heard a story of, a, of a, a man who was making his first trip to India. And when he asked others who had been on this trip before what he should make sure he sees, just about everyone who had ever traveled to India said that he had to make it to Agra to see the Taj Mahal. And so that became a must-see on his itinerary. But when he got there, he said he was so undone by the vendors and the hawkers and the hustlers, the sort of circus atmosphere that pops up around every high-profile tourist trap in the world. He was so put off by the gaudy little plastic, cheap Taj Mahal trinkets and baubles, keychains, refrigerator magnets, t-shirts and hats, that he almost kept on walking. He almost didn't go inside because he was so repelled and repulsed by the way these vendors and merchants had turned this thing, this thing of supposed great beauty, into a sideshow. And while a great many of the other tourists were lapping it up, filling their shopping bags with cheap imitations of the Taj Mahal, for this particular traveler, it left him queasy and disquieted and unsettled. And he almost left without ever stepping into the shrine itself. But there was something about it, something beckoning him, gleaming there in the distance that wouldn't let him walk away. And so he pushed through the crowds and went inside, if nothing else, just to check it off his to-do list. But once inside, once he was no longer distracted by the cacophony of those who were outside and who had cheapened this place by reducing it in size, once he was inside, he stood in stunned silence at its glory, its majesty. He was left breathless by its beauty, a beauty he had almost missed, having been distracted by the less than glorious versions of it that were still clamoring for people's attention just outside. 
I've got this theory, and I don't think there's any real way to test this theory, but I'm going to hold on to it. And my theory is that there are some people in our world who won't even consider walking into a church, a church like this or any church, because they have been put off, repelled by the small, less than glorious, cheap imitations of the church that they see paraded out in the world and in the culture and in the media where hawkers and hustlers have taken what is holy and beautiful and sacred and manipulate it into something that can be marketed and packaged and made appealing to targeted consumers of religion. Whether it is the seductive allure of the prosperity gospel or the idolatry of Christian nationalism, or the shallow self-interestedness of escape theology, where the only concern I have is for me and people like me to get to heaven. Or whether the church is reduced to being little more than a flank in either the right wing or the left wing of whatever culture war is happening at the moment. With these cheap imitations of the Christian church parading around as the real thing, it is no wonder to me that people who are drawn to the way of Jesus are hesitant about getting themselves entangled in something so lacking in glory, so lacking in holiness, so lacking in the beauty that makes the gospel so compelling which is why it falls to us. Those of us who are inside the church and who haven't given up on it. It's why it falls to us not to lose sight of what it means to be the bearers of the Christian gospel. To resist the temptation to become something less than we are, but to remember that we have been entrusted with a proclamation that is so utterly remarkable, so profoundly life-giving and life-changing, to remember that we have been entrusted with a proclamation that has the capacity to restore hope to hopeless people and to breathe life into places where death seems to have won, and to invite people to be in on what God is doing in the world, and to see that this life is infused or can be with a holy purpose. Because what God has done in and through Jesus Christ has changed everything. Everything. That's why the women who went to the tomb on the day after the day after Jesus was killed were rendered speechless. It says they were seized with terror and amazement. And I think they were seized with terror and amazement because now they were going to have to rethink everything they believed to be true. Because if Jesus has been raised, it means death no longer has the last word. If Jesus has been raised, then violence and those who wield it, violence has lost its power. If Jesus has been raised, then the way of God in the world will not be derailed. If Jesus has been raised, then this life can be lived with hope and not with fear. 
If Jesus has been raised, that means the kingdom he came to establish is still intact. If Jesus has been raised, that means the light he brought into the world is still burning. And the darkness can't do anything about it. With the resurrection of Jesus, all the old certainties that diminished human life have been replaced by new certainties which can save us in all the ways that human beings can be saved. Which means we have good news for the world. If we can resist the temptation to become less than we are and the temptation of turning the Christian gospel into something it's not, and instead, if we can come away from the empty tomb dazzled by what God has done and with a joyful commitment to live our whole lives in response to what God has done, if we just might do that, we just might bear witness to the sort of beauty that the human heart finds irresistible. The sort of beauty we see in the selfless love of Jesus, the sort of beauty we see whenever the selfless love of Jesus takes root in a human heart and expresses itself in genuine neighborliness. We can't do anything about the hawkers and the hustlers of a watered-down, corrupted Christian gospel. All we can do is stay true to our highest calling, which is to shine the light of Jesus Christ in a world that is desperate for it. And a world that will be drawn to it. Because I'm persuaded that the good news we have to share, the good news to which we get to bear witness is the object of every heart's yearning. Every heart, without exception. Brian Zond, in his book, Beauty Will Save the World, he tells the story of how a thousand years ago, Prince Vladimir the Great was looking for a new religion to unify the Russian people. So he sent emissaries to all the neighboring realms to investigate the faith traditions that were in place among the people around him. And when these delegations returned, they gave their reports. Some religions they found were dour and austere. Others were abstract and theoretical. But those who went to Constantinople to study the Christianity of the Byzantine Empire reported finding a faith so steeped in such transcendent beauty that those who made the report said they could never be sure whether they were in heaven or on earth. They said when they were led to the place where they worshipped God, they found themselves in a place of such overwhelming beauty, surrounded by sights and sounds and a devotion so glorious that the only thing they could be sure of was that God was there among them. And so for Prince Vladimir, the choice was easy. He wanted that. He wanted that for his people. This encounter with transcendent beauty rooted in a clear sense of God's presence. He wanted that for his people, a faith that takes your breath away. 
A faith that leaves you speechless. Which is what authentic Easter faith tends to do. So I titled this sermon Shock and Awe because that's one way a particular scholar talked about the feelings that the women had upon encountering the empty tomb. Having seen what they had seen, they were in shock and awe, which is an interesting turn of phrase because you know most of the time, shock and awe is a, a phrase used to describe a particular military objective to so overwhelm an adversary with might that they decide that the fight is not worth it and they concede defeat. But it got me to wondering if we might think about that expression in another way. I wonder if we might have as our singular ambition to live with such an attentiveness to the way of Jesus, with such an unwavering devotion to God and an unwavering devotion to neighbor. I mean, what if we lived with such an alignment to the way of Jesus? We were so attentive to the hungry, so attentive to the suffering and the outcast and the despairing and the invisible and the ignored? What if we were so single-minded in our commitment to be the risen Christ in our world that those who were ready to dismiss us as irrelevant took another look at us and what they saw left them speechless, surprised and stunned that such a life of devotion was possible so that they are now prepared to settle aside the lives for which they were ready to settle because they, it's the only life they thought was available to them. But that our witness to the life of Jesus and the way of Jesus invited them to believe that God has something better in mind for us. Lives lived for a holy purpose. Lives that show forth the beauty that is at the core of God's own self. Lives that almost glow in the dark because they reflect a light that can't be overcome no matter how dark the tomb or heavy the stone. I mean, what if your presence here in this community as a body of Christ was the source of absolute amazement to a world that is not easily amazed? What if your worship was so divine, your love so genuine, your mission so selfless, your motives so pure, that what people saw when they looked at you was not really you, but the God who is at work in you? What if your way of being the church left people speechless? and persuaded them beyond a shadow of a doubt that God was present here and now, that the risen Christ was present here and now. I've thought about this. I just can't think of a better thing to be than to be a church like that. Can you? To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.